September 27, 1990, police surround a rental truck on Highway 64, just west of Dyer, Arkansas. Inside, they find three men, but not the man they are looking for. Tony Alamo, a television evangelist and the guiding force behind the Holy Alamo Christian Church. Alamo, who once preached the gospel to thousands every week, was wanted on charges of tax evasion and child abuse. He had been on the run for nearly two years. Tony Alamo, his church Alamo Ministries, his clothing store, the Alamo, or the Alamo, arguably, though I bet a lot of people didn't read it that way when they saw the billboard standing high back in the 1980s, and his dead wife. These were some of the first phenomena I heard about upon arriving in Nashville. Someone said, you've got to do an episode on this Nashville preacher who kept his dead wife in a freezer in their church basement. And someone else said, no, 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 he kept his wife's body on a table. It was more of a shrine. Either way, I was intrigued, obviously. Who was this man who kept his wife's body somewhere hidden away in Nashville? You're listening to Nashville Demystified. I am your host, Alex Steed. Nashville Demystified is a show in which I get to know the city better. This is an episode that is a part of our run of Music City Tales from the 1980s miniseries, I guess. I guess, yes, it's a miniseries. It's sporadically kept up. (laughs) And it's an ongoing collection of tales about this city back in the decade of Ronald Reagan. So today we're going to feature an interview with Debbie Shriver, who wrote a book on Tony Alamo and the children of his cult. The show is brought to you by Knack Factory, a commercial video and content production company that produces this show and by we own this town a collection of podcasts made by and for nashvillians if you're not doing so already please follow us on instagram twitter and facebook under the name nashville demystified actually on twitter it's n demystified the name was too long i your host am also on these platforms and embarrassingly for a person in their upper mid 30s on tiktok (laughs) and i have the following of a man in his upper mid 30s upper mid 30s is really is is a really funny denial way of saying 37 years old (laughs) but i'm on those various platforms under the name alex steed steed like a horse and please if you like the show rate and subscribe wherever you can or listen to podcasts leave a review it really does help oh and i should let you know right now that this episode includes mention of rape sexual assault and pedophilia we do not linger on these topics, but it definitely comes up a couple of times. And so I want you to be aware in case these are things that are triggering for you. I don't, I don't want this episode to upset you more than it should. So I just want you to know about that. Maybe come back, maybe visit one of our other Music City Tales from the 1980s episodes if you have to turn away. So back to the preacher who supposedly kept his wife in a freezer. The preacher, of course, was Tony Alamo, born Bernie Hoffman, a church founder and cult leader who gave the IRS hell and kept child brides as young as eight. I'm happy for Nashville that it turns out he did not keep the body of his late wife Susan, the co-founder and many argue brains behind the church in operation, in any Nashville basements that happened in Arkansas. And it wasn't, it turns out, a basement. According to the website Tulsa World, I quote, Susan died on April 8th, 1982 at Oral Roberts City of Faith Hospital in Tulsa, Arkansas, 
after a long battle with breast cancer, she had started out preaching to street people in Los Angeles in 1968 before marrying Tony Alamo and establishing a Christian foundation. Tony Alamo predicted that his wife would be resurrected. Her body was taken to the foundation's compound on a ridge overlooking the town of Dyer, Arkansas, where Susan Alamo was born, Edith Opal Horn. By the way, if they didn't change their names, their names would be Bernie and Edith. (laughs) And I can't take a cult seriously led by Bernie and Edith. Anyway, back to quoting Tulsa World, Alamo placed Susan's casket in their living room and ordered followers to hold a 24-hour prayer vigil until she rose from the dead. Her embalmed body was kept on display for six months before being entombed in a marble crypt near a heart-shaped swimming pool. That's lovely. So there you go. Not Nashville, but not far off. I think the confusion about what happened with Susan Alamo's body and in what state it was kept happened in part because it was so long ago, of course, but also because there's earnest confusion. Many who knew the Alamo Church and other related properties were in Nashville, didn't necessarily know that they were elsewhere, too, that they were in Los Angeles and Arkansas. And so when folks heard that Alamo is keeping Susan's body somewhere, the presumption was that it was within the buildings that people here in Nashville knew about. The specter of the false body memory, though, unfortunately, erases Tony Alamo's famous clothing store and the fact that they sold jackets that, according to many sources, including a documentary that came out through Sundance last year and and Debbie Shriver, who we're going to talk to today, were made by child labor and kids who were born into the cult. The jackets were worn by celebrities from the time. Uh, Alamo would kind of give them to the celebrities so that they could be pictured and it could boost his brand as I understand it. Mr. T is one of those celebrities and Hulk Hogan is another. Miley Cyrus has been seen wearing Alamo jackets and author Debbie Shriver, who we're going to talk with today, is trying to get folks to donate their jackets so that they can be sold to help with the rehabilitation of Alamo cult survivors. So if you're listening, Miley, please consider reaching out to Debbie. She's trying to do some good work out there, and I think you have one of the jackets, and you've got a nice profile. can help draw some attention to this thing. So, okay, Tony didn't keep Susan's body in Nashville, but what he did have here was a house, a church, and a business. The church, a tax-free organization, or around it was built a tax-free foundation, ultimately ran dozens of businesses, particularly after Susan's death. Tony was a businessman, and... It put Tony under the scrutiny of the IRS because all of these businesses were said to not have to comply to tax regulations. And uh, also there were some pretty bad labor practices occurring, which we touch on here, but not so deeply. Uh, Those are things that you can find through other media. And I suggest you look into it. It was wild. This guy is wild. He used members of a cult to make clothes essentially for free and dared not to pay taxes on it, which was probably one of his biggest mistakes. This would inevitably lead to the IRS's pursuit of him and the pursuit of what they considered to be millions of dollars that they were owed. And it led to the closure of his businesses, including the famous Alamo clothing store. Whenever you mention Alamo to Nashvillians of a certain age, many will recall the clothing store. Many will say they heard something or other about him storing Susan's body somewhere in the church. 
Almost all will talk about his rabidly anti-Catholic fire and brimstone tracts, which followers would hand out by the tens of thousands. We talk about all of this and more with Alamo biographer Debbie Shriver, who wrote the book Whispering in the Daylight, the Children of Tony Alamo Christian Ministries and Their Journey to Freedom, which documents the rise and fall of Alamo and, as the title suggests, the hardships faced by the children of the cult. Remember, Alamo was, in addition to a tax cheat, a rapist and a child molester, and he left dozens of folks broken in his wake. Over the course, I mean, of his prolific career of, of being essentially a cult leader, there's actually much more than just dozens. In addition to having written the book, Debbie is committed to educating communities about the dangers of coercive, controlling groups. Her focus is especially on the children who are born and raised in abusive cults and face immense challenges when integrating into the outside world. Debbie serves on the board of directors of the International Cultic Studies Association and is president of Keys to Mia Foundation to provide support for cult survivors and communities. Actually, you know, one of the things that I found fascinating that comes up in our conversation is the similarity between Alamo, who is said to have bragged about being able to, well, supposedly being able to kill someone and get away with it while also maintaining worshipers. And you guessed it, our sitting president. I was intrigued to hear that recovered cult members can feel triggered by the words of the president. And if that is not a 2020 nugget, I'm not sure what is. Wild, wild times. And also, quickly, I should note that while Tony died in 2017 while serving time for child rape convictions, I am told that the church is still in operation and they still maintain followers, though I'm not sure how many, in Nashville and elsewhere. All right, that's it from me for now. Let's talk with Debbie, see what she has to say about Tony Alamo, Susan Alamo, and the whole Alamo ordeal. Well, thank you so much for making the time to do this. I'm coming from a a pretty specific Nashville background. And uh, what I've noticed is people know that Tony Alamo has connections to the area and to the city by way of the store in particular, and obviously the tracks, which is which is how people tend to remember him. But I'm beginning to notice, I mean, it was, it's, you know, about 40 years ago, 40 to 30 in, in the window, and truth versus reality seem to be missing a little bit. And so I was wondering if we could just start quickly by you telling me who Tony Alamo is, or, or was, I should say. He grew up and went to California in his early 20s, 19, 20, 21, to become a, a star in the music industry. And he, he was a sociopath, he was narcissistic, and he began working with recording studios and recording stars and working with record industry. And he was fairly successful at it, but to hear him say it, he always claimed to have a, an unpublished Beatles album. He mm. claimed to be the one who is responsible for Sonny and Cher and lots of stars. The reality is he was kind of a two-bit promoter who did some things but wasn't a star. And really, people didn't take him very seriously. He hired people to look like a, a security company. He'd hire limos to take him to agents to look like he was a big deal. And in reality, he wasn't. His name was Bernard Bernie Lazar Hoffman was his original mm. name. 
And he changed his name deliberately to Tony Alamo when he went to California. He thought that would suit him well and give him some stardom. He was married, very short-lived, and he was very cruel to women. He, he demeaned women. He raped women. He attacked women all his life. His wife, Susan Alamo, she left. She was sort of on a similar path. I like to think of them as two stars that collided when they got to California. Mm. She was born in Alma, Arkansas. And in the 60s, she went, and he was the same time frame, went to California to become a star. And she had a little baby that she took with her. She scammed churches all the way there to get money. And she married, her name was Edith Opal Horn. She renamed herself Susan and married a man there. Lebowitz was his name. She set up a foundation that was a phony kind of church foundation back then. Then it just fell apart. She divorced her husband and she and Tony met in a bar. And the story, and this is pretty well documented, she said, Tony, do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ died to save your life? And he said, yes, I do, but tell me more about it. And she said, come over to my apartment and I'll tell you about it. And she told her daughter, who was in her teens then, don't come home tonight. From then on, they really started a scam in the 60s and the 70s. I was of that generation. You know, there was a real lot of unrest, a lot of um, dissatisfaction with society, and a lot of flower children went to disenfranchised people went to California looking for a better life. And she and Tony would troll the streets of LA and Hollywood and find these hippies. And she spoke very poorly of them, but she acted like she absolutely loved them. And she saved them and she had them come live in a house that they rented. And um, she basically brainwashed them. She and Tony yes. did that together. And at one point early on, he said to Susan, you know, why are you messing with all these dirty, ugly hippies? And she said, no, Tony, you're seeing it differently. What you see out there is our harvest. Because they were, as I, as I understand it, these people who are a part of their church or a part of their worship were encouraged not just to give, but to sort of get money from their families and to get money from the welfare system and to turn it up into the church. And, and that sounds like a dynamic profit generator, uh, cynically. <laughs> and is, is that what was happening? Yes. And um, it's very common to cult leaders. I mean, cult leaders basically are motivated by power and greed. Mm. And they go for people who are going to make them money. They don't go for stupid people. They go for smart people who are going to re represent them well and recruit for them and make them money. And that's kind of something that people often don't know. You know, the stereotype is that if you're in a cult, you're stupid or you're, mm. you're homeless and can't do for yourself. And they certainly took in homeless people, but they took in smart people and they knew how to manipulate them. And over time, they moved their first compound and it was truly a compound. And if you close your eyes and imagine what it might be, it was gated off, armed guards watched it and their followers were not allowed to leave. That was in Saugus, California, about 45 minutes in the canyon country outside of LA. And they would take people up there for a free dinner and a church service and offer to take them back. And they convinced them to stay. And mm. they not only took all their family money, their social security money, if they had that, disability money, if they had that, scholarship money, if they had that, 
heading into school. And then he used them for free labor on his compound to build buildings and so on. But at that time, they hadn't gotten into the clothing industry yet. There would be like rose farms and different farms out in the community where they needed workers. And he would send his followers out there to do labor and they would Mm -hmm. come back and give their money to Tony and Susan. And Tony and Susan set up a foundation and said it was all church money. So they were not, you know, they had no taxes. The IRS went after him a lot, trying to get him for wage and salary issues. Children as young as eight, when you turned eight years old, you started working too. And he left California. He kept Saugus. He kept that compound going. But in the 70s, he moved in a little bit. He told everybody California was going to hell and God hated it. And, it, you know, the fires and, the, and so on. And so he left some followers there to continue to recruit. And then he moved into Arkansas and he set up lots of properties in Arkansas. And that's where he started the clothing business. At that same time, in 1977, he opened Music Square Church in Nashville. And Mm. that there was a house. It was kind of near Printer's Alley. It was in that area. And there's actually a house where he lived that still exists. And I can get that address for you if you wanted. I've forgotten it. Yeah, I, I found an interesting article from the Nashville scene about when he had moved out. And I, I don't know who ended up taking over the house, but I, I think it was sort of a, a well-known developer, someone in the record industry. And there was an article about them sort of doing a sage burning in order to get the Tony out. You know? That's right. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And so tell me a bit about, let's move in, in just so people know, we're doing a bit of an accelerated history. We strongly suggest people read your book in order to, to catch up with the actual history. But tell me a bit about, um, and I'm, I'm going to be very disappointed and upset to burst people's bubble about what they think happened to, to Susan's body in Nashville, because they think that happened in Nashville. But, but, but let's, let's walk through what their time in Nashville looks like from the opening of the church to then the opening of the store, which seems to have been a cultural landmark in Nashville. Truly. Um, you know, and, and Tony was well known for these blue jean jackets that were sequined and bedazzled and airbrushed. And he did he did all kinds of things, more than jackets. He did t-shirts and all kinds of things, but the jackets were his trademark and children made those jackets. They were, you know, long hours as did the women. Um, and they, um, he gave them to all kinds of stars. And actually, if you go to the Tony Alamo Christian Ministries website, on the menu, there's a gallery that you can click mm. and you will see um you will see all kinds of stars who you'll see. You'll see Mr. T and Michael Jackson. Um, it's a, it's a very motley crew of people for who had these jackets. Yes. And you know, Miley Cyrus, who I understand sure. still may still wear her jacket. Dolly mm. Parton opened his first restaurant in, in, um, Arkansas, mm. um, years before this, but the jackets go for lots of money. Now you can go on eBay and, they're incredibly expensive. And one of my goals is I'm setting up a foundation to help cult survivors. But one of my goals is to get those jackets donated and um, turn the money 
sell them at an auction and, and give the money back to the kids who made them. Yeah, people just don't realize that these jackets that they had uh, were, or that they might still have in their closet somewhere, were made by children. And can you tell me, in women who were essentially sort of imprisoned in this cult, and can you tell me what's the alternative to making jackets? Was there, if you're, if you're in the church, or, or was that on the table? He had warehouses where he would put all donations from grocery stores, from all kinds of department stores, and the cult members would take the price tags off, use acetate and take the expiration Mm. dates off canned goods, and Mm. they'd be repackaged. And he had a trucking business that would drive them to other Mm. places to liquidate them. Mm. And so anything donated was not given to the people who needed it. It was to fill Tony Alamo's pockets. You know, so all of this was to raise money. And in fact, in, in Nashville, there was a billboard. And I really wanted to find a photograph of it for the book I wrote. But there was a billboard that said, Tony and Susan Alamo welcome you to Music City. And wow. there was a picture of, of them sitting on top of a, a you know, a, a convertible and she was in a fur coat and he was in his stud outfits and she would, had lots of diamonds. And it was over there. There are people in Nashville who remember it. Nashville, the Music Square Church was, was they had church there, but it was really a front for the business. And IRS in 1980, no, in 85, the IRS actually shut them down because of tax evasion. And it was always a dance with the IRS and the Alamos because they would, they would put their money into their followers' pockets so that they then looked like the church wasn't wealthy. And he was in and out of jail for that. By the way, there's still a presence in Nashville. There's still followers who live in Nashville. Right. And I just heard a, a podcast interview, and I'll send it to you if you haven't heard it, with, with some people in Los Angeles who I think in 2018 ended up going out to the, um, uh, the oh, compound there. Oh, that's great. I have heard it. The radio. Oh, yes. Thing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So Susan, Susan, after I, as I understand it, after years of pretending that she had cancer and had recovered and, and actually didn't, had cancer. And she passed in 82, as, as I understand it. And this is when they're out in the Arkansas compound. The, my first introduction to these people are, I was told that Tony ran a church in Nashville and they kept Susan's body in a freezer in the basement. It turns out did not be true. Good for Nashville, you know, to not have that state. <laughs> But 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 what what was the deal with him keeping her? I know he he did keep her. What was what was that about? She died in 1982, and it was ironic that she died of cancer when she pretended she had it all those years. Um, and she died in in Tulsa, and I think he was very afraid that he would lose his power with his cult with his yeah. people because Susan was really the the one that. For some reason, it's hard to imagine, but she had the charisma that pulled the people in. He was a promoter and he promoted Susan. And Susan was kind of the glue for the church. And in fact, on her deathbed, she said to Tony, Tony, you're going to have to give up the church or you'll wreck it. And he was, I think he was really afraid that he was going to lose his following and he didn't know what to do. And I also do think he was genuinely sad, grieving. He truly was grieving. And it may have been because of the church that he might lose or that he really had a connection to her. It's hard to say. But when she died, he put her in a wedding dress. She had, she had told him she had a vision um, not long before she died that 
she was in a white wedding dress and she was walking through a field and she said, daddy, daddy, do I look pretty now? And her daddy in heaven said, yes, you look pretty now. And she and Tony had always preached that they were the two prophets that were chosen by God and they would be sent back here. If they died, they would, you know, they would be resurrected. So he went out and found a white wedding dress Mm. and he dressed her in it and had his followers put makeup and she was embalmed, but he had her then transported from Oklahoma to Georgia Ridge in Arkansas and put her open casket in the dining room and had his followers pray 24-7 for six months for her resurrection. And when she didn't resurrect, he one day called all his followers together and berated them for not praying right or praying to the wrong God. But because of them, she wasn't resurrected. And so they built kind of a mausoleum, a heart-shaped mausoleum, and put her casket there on the property at Georgia Ridge. Um, He then introduced his next wife to the group, and her name was Brigida, and she looked very much like Tony, and it's my thought, and hers as well, that he was actually planning. She, She left him when he was insisting on some plastic surgery. It's our thinking that he wanted to introduce her as the resurrected Susan Alamo. Oh, wow. Figuring, fixing her to look like Susan, which is really creepy, but... I mean, it, it's so interesting what you're saying because so much of the um, the kind of conning and, and shell game and all that stuff that needed to happen in order for him to like evade the IRS and use the church to essentially sort of hide slash launder money and do all these things, it seems like required some awareness that the things that they were saying weren't true. But then also to go through the effort of keeping your late wife and having people pray around your late wife, I mean, that seems to be a bit more than doing it just for the theatrics. Do you have any sense of how much he believed the stuff that he was saying? He didn't believe it, but he saw how powerful it was to remain in control. He saw that he could get people to believe it, and he taught them that he was a direct line to God. He would, mm. you know, people would ask him something and he'd say, well, just a minute. And he'd say, God says, you know, he'd oh, wow. listen and he used it. I'm convinced he never believed any in any of that. There's so many, so many accountings of how he really talked about all this behind closed doors. And the IRS went to Georgia Ridge to, to claim all his property there because of tax evasion. And he had a heads up about it. So he he had all his followers take everything of value that they could out of there. And one of the things they did was they took Susan's body out of there. And he said, don't tell me where it is. And that's, I think, part of how the Nashville story may have evolved as well. Um, Mm. For a long time, we didn't know where it was. It was stored in a um, storage unit in Arkansas. And it was not return, you know, it was finally put to rest. She was cremated and put to rest years later in the 90s when her daughter took Tony Alamo to court to get her mother's body back. Which is surreal because her daughter, her name is Chris, I believe. Is, is that the case? Yeah. yeah her, her daughter was not treated well by either her mother or by, I mean, I think Tony raped her and, and her mother obviously looked the other way on that. Do you have a sense of, about why Did you get any sense about Chris's sort of take on why she did that? Chris is a complicated person, 
and she truly always loved her mother. Her mother was abusive. As young as Chris can remember, her mother was abusive well before mm. Tony. When Tony came along, of course, then it was so much more horrible. And she got out of there finally when she had children and she was protecting her children. And, mm. you know, she's in a good place now, but she still always loved her mother, even though her stories are just horrific. I'm not going to pretend like it's easy to understand any person. You know, it's, it's very difficult, but, but in particular, and I'm sure you know more than most covering this. So I just want to do a quick recap about Nashville, and then I want to find out what happens to Tony in the, in the 90s and beyond. So it sounds like they had a home in Nashville, they had a church in Nashville, and they had the store in Nashville. And as I understand it, there were maybe a couple other businesses with investments. I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. Um, and then in the IRS puts the heat on in a big way and they owed a lot of money. I mean, I found the old Tennessean articles about it and it's, it's happening as you know, throughout the whole decade, which I imagine is making him crazier. Cause I can't imagine fighting the IRS is fun for your psyche. And inevitably there are gains in sort of the IRS end. what is Tony's post Nashville life. I know the, the store closed. The church doesn't have a presence there. You, as you're saying, the church has, has followers there still. But what did Tony's life look like from the 90s on? I can't imagine it gets prettier. It doesn't. He spent a lot of his time away from the church, kind of running hidden. He was often on the lam. He was in prison some, but it was always for IRS kinds of offenses. And after Susan died, he really became quite a pedophile. He believed that, well, he said that um, when girls reached puberty, they were fine to marry and he would choose his spiritual brides out of these young girls as young as eight years old. Mm. And he was truly horrible and he continued to have wives and he did not preach polygamy, but he had many wives at different times. And he really wasn't taken to justice until 2008. He was in and out of prisons, hiding out a lot. And the people in the church, he rarely was speaking to his flock. I mean, this is the interesting thing. He wasn't up at the pulpit speaking. He would do tapes. They would have to hear those tapes. And the elders in the church, they called them the brothers, would be the ones that would run church. But Tony rarely, even during Susan and Tony's time, they were rarely appearing in church. It was more they were outside milking the country and milking the world. And he had, he had some followers in Africa and South America. Oh. So he used people. He had his henchmen that really did the work. And he had lots of properties where he would hang out. He was captured kind of in the 90s. He was found in Florida and taken to prison. And he was in Memphis for a while there. And then he would always get out and continue what he was doing. And he, he ruled from prison. And then mm. finally, in 2008, the FBI had a raid on his properties in, in um, Falk, Arkansas. And at the same time, they went to the Saugus Canyon property as well. News of the raid had gotten out, so they had to do it sooner than they had expected to. And so unfortunately, they didn't get as many children in that first raid and he had already gone on the lamb. In the next weeks, they brought in a lot of children and the parents went to court and they could be told they could have their children back if they agreed not to raise them in the compounds in Tony Alama's church. 
and most of them did not agree to, you know, said, I picked Tony Alamo. And so these children were put in foster care and there were children that had been born and raised there. And that's really where I've been focusing my attention. Oh, wow. Tony was arrested in Arizona. And the funny thing is he was arrested by using his cell phone. Oh um, my gosh. You know, it's such a silly mistake. And so he just gave he, his location away. Is that what yeah, happened? Yeah, gave his location away. Huh. And so they brought him in and he went through a trial and he was sentenced to um, 175 years with no parole. He continued, he continued to run all of his church from prison and was extremely, he had so much money. Usually pedophiles are not on the high end in prisons, but he was because he had a lot of, a lot of money and he had a lot of followers in prison as well as on the outside. Mm. And, he always had some wives live wherever he was, and they would move him from one penitentiary to the other because he would develop such a power base. They'd have to move him somewhere else. And he always moved some wives there, and the wives were the ones that were the communicators between his flock and Tony. And Tony did die, and I'm trying to – I've got to check my notes to see – exactly the year now because it seems like he's still alive very much so <laughs> it really does well the the thing the thing one thing that stuck out to me is i i had read or encountered a line where he said something that was chillingly familiar which is that he could stab someone in the middle of a congregation and keep going which which the the president has said that he could shoot someone in the the, the middle of times square and keep going do you do you i don't mean to put you on the spot politically but do you see similarities here between these Absolutely. people Absolutely. I will tell you, um, he has all the characteristics of a cult leader, mm. Trump does. And I can tell you that he triggers a lot of the Alamo followers. Oh, um, I imagine. He really does. And, you know, it it's kind of a PTSD thing for them. And we've had to really talk that through. Tony died in 2017, by the okay. way. He died in a, a medical facility that was in a prison in North Carolina. And he has been cremated as well. And he is, his ashes are kept in Tulsa where Susan's are kept, uh. oddly enough. And I'll tell you kind of a funny twist about that. Mm. Um, he always said that, you know, Susan would never die. He always said he would never die. I interviewed him. He said he, I asked, asked him about succession planning and he said, I'm never going to die. And the interesting thing is though, after Susan's ashes were entombed um, in Tulsa. He bought a place for his ashes, just like two little drawers down from hers. Hmm. And I went there to see that. And I thought, well, that's interesting. He said he'd never, never die, but he bought a place for his ashes to be. And he also bought it right down from Susan's. And I know he did that so that her daughter, Chris, would be tortured every time she'd visit there. Oh, my God. That's um, wild. I know he did. The level that level of control in every transaction, down to where your body is kept, and for you know for the foreseeable future, is is very hard to wrap one's head around. It is. It's. It really is. And you know, there are a couple of things. It's important for everyone to know that people who join cults don't say, "I'm going to join a cult." They believe that the community they're joining is a wonderful one because these cult leaders are very, very good at selling the used car. 
You know, they are very right. good. And I don't mean to put down used car salespeople. No, they're, sure. very, <laughs> they're very good at figuring out, like they would say, they would know, Alex, exactly what pushes your buttons. They would know your weak point and they would go for it. Mm. And there are many times in our lives when we're vulnerable and any one of us could end up there and not realize it. They do their indoctrination very similar to warp prisoners. They control sleep, they control food, they control who your friends are, they control everything. And eventually you're down to that base level of surviving and you'll do anything to survive. And then you believe what they tell you. And a lot of former members now are again impacted by the world today. You know, they were taught that there would be famine, disease, hurricanes, storms, sure. floods, and they're looking around and seeing this happening. And it's sort of scary. Mm. Like, you know, maybe that was all true. There is a book I recommend to anyone who wants to explore further the parallels between a cult leader and our current president. Mm. It's called The Cult of Trump. And it's written by Stephen Hassan. He's very well known in, in the cult academic world. And he's a very good writer. Simon & Schuster published it. It's oh. a really fine book. Everyone, when I'd say anything about Alamo to anyone who was in Nashville in the 80s, the thing that comes up immediately are the tracks. Mm -hmm. Can you just can you just tell us what an Alamo track is and and maybe like quick cliff notes version of, of what kind of ideology we're going to get in one of those, uh, particularly, yes. I guess, if we're Catholic? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He did not. He called Catholics cat lickers. Oh my gosh. He was yeah. really, 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 he was, he believed that the Pope and the United States government were in a conspiracy. And a tract is um, a flyer that's eight and a half by 11. The children actually collated them and were taken in vans and given big backpacks to distribute them. And they'd be put on cars and you can, they still are in Walmarts, football stadiums, airport parking, um, shopping center parking, and they the kids are there at you know at odd times, and they're taught to run from the police, and it's a real exciting time for them to be out, but it's very hard work. They distribute seventy to eighty thousand tracks on a tracking trip, and they go mm -hmm. all over the country, and they're still out there, and the same ones are being distributed today. It definitely has a boilerplate format. the The front of it has a picture of Tony and Susan. And it's still called Tony and Susan Christian Ministries, or Tony Alamo Christian Ministries. And the first page would be a treatise about, for example, the Pope and, and the U.S. government, or, or something about storms and fire and famine and what's going to happen to us. It would be a real end times kind of story. And there would be, quote, biblical citations. It would just be, in parenthesis, it might say Timothy something. And then on the very back page will be a whole list of all those notes and what they say so <laughs> that it's you know real inclusive. There would be pictures. There might be a picture of... of children playing or people around a table talking and looking very happy and constructive and all those i interviewed the photographer from all those years and he said all of those were staged none yeah. of those were real and um, then you'd open it and there might be one or two kind of features of somebody like a testimony from a follower saying 
you know, if it weren't for Tony Alamo, I would be in prison and on drugs and probably dead. If it weren't for Tony Alamo, I'd be a prostitute. My children would be, you know, would be going to hell. And so God bless Tony Alamo. And then there would be letters from Africa. Dear Pastor Alamo, thank you so much for sending us the Bibles and the t-shirts. We've given out every one of them, and we could really use some additional tracts and some more Bibles if you have them. And then there would be another sort of testimonial there about the impact that he's had there. And that's basically what they are. It wasn't until I, you know, early on, and again, I, I don't, I don't mean to divert this, and, and this is not meant to be talking about partisan politics at all. But the, the very early on, I thought the closest binary to Trump was Charles Manson, and specifically because of the things that he talked about were going to happen. There was very, there was a coming race war. He was talking about vulnerable people. He was mind control, some level of hypnosis, etc. And the more I know about Alamo, who to me is like. Is is somehow more of a sad figure. I mean, not not one that I necessarily have sympathy for, but is kind of everything about him evokes a very strange, like uh, existential sadness. You know, I was like, oh, this is a much closer binary. Um, I, I'm curious about why you were drawn to to writing this book, and it sounds like you're still you're engaged with with a community around the book. Tell me a bit about you, your interest in the book, and where you're at now with it. I'm retired from the University of Tennessee where I worked with new students primarily. And I've always really been tuned in to to people who are in transition. And when I did retire, I was asked to write a book. Um, I had written a book a long time ago, an academic kind of book about um, a woman who wrote a journal in 1810, something totally different. Mm. And then I wrote a book about um, the Lady Balls. And um, I've noticed that what I love to write about is I like to write nonfiction, stories whose voices need to be magnified. Mm. I have to turn up the volume on stories that need to be heard. And the parents, the people who had adopted some of the kids who were taken in the 2008 raid in Arkansas were really concerned because their children were not, were still very troubled. When you're born and raised in a cult, you are hardwired with those beliefs and you never learn trust. You never learn to connect to people. It's very hard. But these kids were very smart. They excelled in everything they did because in the cult, if you didn't do what you were told, you were beaten severely. I mean, really severely. The punishment was horrible. There's a woman now who can't have children because she was beaten so hard as a girl. Mm. Um, The stories are really awful. Mm. And these children were taken You know, I think sometimes we say they're rescued. They saw themselves as being taken by the FBI, whom Tony said the FBI would kill them someday. They did come in with guns because they didn't know what they were going to see. Tony had shown them films of Waco. They were primed to be killed. And so they were taken. They didn't trust anyone out here. And... This was a few years later, and they still were not really showing emotion, making friends, integrating into the community. And um, so they thought maybe it would help to write their stories, maybe if they wrote a book and they wanted me to help them do that. And I didn't know that I had to think a long time about whether I could do that, but I met the kids, and subsequently we learned to trust each other. And I wrote their story. It's the book is Whispering in the Daylight, the children of Tony Alamo Christian Ministries and their journey Mm -hmm. to freedom. I have gray pages throughout that actually are kind of the 
what's going on with the FBI, what's going on in the community, and you can get some good Nashville tidbits and other mm. kinds of things that ground you in the facts throughout the book. But these kids really tore my heart apart. You know, they, they came out of there with no social security numbers, with nothing. Mm. And, you know, I remember at one point, I, I interviewed more than 300 people to write this book. And I was sitting in, in an area with about 100 children, and it was kind of dusk, and we were all talking, and I wasn't recording or taking notes. I was just getting to know them, and they were getting to sound me out. And um, at one point, I said, well, did you guys have Social Security numbers? Knowing that they didn't. But they said, no, we didn't even know what that was. And I just said, huh. And they said, well, that means nobody knew we existed. And I said, right. And they said, that means we could have died, and nobody would have known. Right. And, I, and everybody got really quiet. And I said, do you think that happened? Now, I want to tell you, I know that didn't happen. That wasn't mm -hmm. Tony Alamo's MO at all. But they said it could have. Yeah, it really could have. And that shows you the fear and the power that he had over those followers, particularly the children who were jerked from their families. They never even had a sense of family or parents. And so I wrote their story. And this is their story. And since then, I've gotten involved with, I'm on the board of directors for the International Cultic Studies Association, which is an odd group, but it really works <laughs> to identify cults in the world and provide services for people who are getting out or for families who are concerned about family members who are in cults or coercive groups. And I take the kids with me and we speak at conferences. And in fact, I was in Nashville last February and did a a program on February 22nd. It was the last group event I encountered before the pandemic, but we had over 100 people in Nashville, lawyers, social workers, DCS people, police department people who came to learn how do we, how can we help cult survivors? Because these kids wouldn't speak to anyone. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of people coming out of cults who um, we don't know how to help. We can't reach them easily. So my goal, I'm setting up a foundation right now to um, provide education for cult survivors to help them get so that they can get jobs and, and get on a good path. And the other part is to provide education for communities so that we can be smarter. You know, as long as we have people, we're going to have cult leaders and we're going to have followers. But if we can be smarter ourselves and control our own communities and know what to look for and know to speak up, we can maybe make a difference. Right. It, it, it's interesting now too, in that the way the internet works in particular, like it doesn't, there doesn't need to be a physical presence for, for cult involvement, as I understand it. I mean, there's right. with, with, with emergence of sort of groups like QAnon and others, there are people who don't necessarily need to be swayed by one-on-one -on -one by a person. It can be by sort of like a group of people that they interact with. And so I imagine the work that you're doing, it only gets trickier as <laughs> things get more yeah. decentralized. Yeah. And there are strong online cults. You know, mm. there are one-on-one -on -one cults. Psychics can create that kind of power over one person. A lot of gurus do. And sure. there are also cults that aren't religious-based, but they're based on cre developing your career, developing mm. your, under the guise of coaching. And there are a lot of coaching programs that are wonderful. But cult leaders will take those words and twist them mm. and really be very dangerous. Wow.
So, you know, I, I just want to thank you so much for not just doing this work, but, you know, c continuing, obviously, to be to be involved with the communities that were impacted. It's great that, you know, you're you're continuing to not just sort of shine a light, but to be involved. That's fantastic. Um, you're welcome. I applaud you at pulling out the story and letting people know what Alamo did in Nashville, because you know he didn't have as many followers there that he was having beaten right there. But for every follower here, there were many, many people being beaten and starved and fat on fastings, some terrible things going on out there. And I'm glad that you can continue to teach people about it. It's important for this not to go quiet. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Debbie. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye, Alex. Well, that is it for this episode of Nashville Demystified. Thanks so much to Debbie for talking with us, to Cameron Davidson for making these episodes sound so good, to Knack Factory for making the show possible till we own this town for the same. I look forward to connecting with you again soon on our second installment of this deep dive on Tony Alamo. You know, if you are into it, check out the other episodes of Music City Tales from the 1980s. We've got some, uh, got some good stories in there. All right. Thanks, y'all.